If you'll join me in Ruth chapter 1. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, you can find that on page 222 if you're using the blue ESV Bible. Ruth chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 22 as we continue in our series to the book of Ruth. The title of our sermon this morning is Determined, and our key words for our worshipers and training are Return, Against, and Mary. Now, to me, one of the most interesting and unfortunately tragic stories of a, uh, of a Christian and a Christian's life to read about is the life of William Cooper. I've talked about Cooper before. You're familiar with many of the things uh, that he has written. He was a poet. He was a hymn writer. His works have, been, have endured since the 18th century. Uh, songs like, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood or God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You may be familiar with the Olney hymn book uh, that Cooper spent uh, working on and writing with John Newton, who was his friend and his mentor, and for all intents and purposes was also his distant pastor. Cooper spent his life as a man afflicted with severe, severe depression in many ways. And yet, Cooper communicated through song and through verse some of the most true, some of the most beautiful realities of the Christian life and the truth of the Scriptures. But his letters, if you ever take the time to read Cooper's letters and journals, sometimes they're very difficult to read, even uh, these many, many years later. They're full of raw emotion. They're full of spiritual doubt In one letter to John Newton, he wrote on January 13th, 1784, and Cooper wrote this. He said, loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come were it once ended. You will tell me that this cold gloom will be Seceded by a cheerful spring, and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it, but it will be lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. My friends, I know, expect that I shall see yet again. They think it necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who once had possession of it should never finally lose it. I admit the solidarity of this reasoning in every case, but my own. And why not my own? I forestall the answer. God's ways are mysterious. He gives no account of His matters. An answer that would serve my purpose as well as theirs that use it. There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. So notice what he is affirming here. He's affirming the doctrine of the perseverance of God's saints. And he does not even deny the reality of his own conversion, that he was converted as a child of God. But what he disputes is the general truth that it applies to him. He is the lone exception in the universe. He, in his mind, is reprobate, even though he was once elect. Why? Well, he says God gives no account God gives no answer. The fact that God saves someone and keeps someone unto the end, that is true of everyone else except for me. 
And that is the bleakest way possible of talking. It cuts off all reasoning. It cuts off all exhortation. Now, I thank God that in 2019 we're able to help people with severe depression more than they were able to in in Cooper's day. It's such a sad, sad story to learn about his life. So helpless, so hopeless. And it pours out in his writing. And yet it's so different from his songs, from his poems. But even though Cooper might seem an extreme example to many of us today, it is a reality that many people deal with in life. This reality of a life lived, a, a, a thought process like Cooper's, a reality that sometimes it seems as though maybe we are the exception to the truth of God's Word. Maybe we were once elect, but, but God has abandoned us. Maybe we think we're, we're going through really difficult trials and, and massive amounts of stress and heartache and sadness. Maybe we're going through all of that because God doesn't love me anymore. There's a tendency in our darkest days to retreat inwardly and to deny the promises of God. And so in this, this morning in our text, we see this very kind of attitude, this very kind of mentality with Naomi. If you recall last week as we looked at verses 1 through 5, you remember that, that Naomi went with her husband Elimelech to, to uh, Moab from Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land that came as a result of God's judgment upon the Israelites. And so they went to Moab and they lived in Moab for 10 years along with their two sons, Malon and Chilion. But they got to Moab and... Elimelech died and left Naomi as a widow. And soon after, Malon and Chilion, they both died and left their Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth, without husbands and without child. All of this was extremely tragic. It was all from the hand of God who who punishes sin and shows His judgment, not just against individuals, but against entire nations. And so Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law are left without husbands. That's tragic. It's just as tragic today as it was in their day. But in their day, for a woman to be without a husband was for that woman to be without any help, to be without any provision, to be without any hope for a future. And if a woman was young enough, she could remarry, but for a woman like Naomi, remarriage was probably out of the question. So what would she do now? Well, what we're going to see in these sad verses this morning is that Naomi sounds a lot like William Cooper. Hopeless. Maybe God has abandoned her altogether. So let's read together, beginning in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. And she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return with you. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, Naomi heard that this famine in Israel had come to an end, so she decided it was time to return home. But the problem for Naomi was that she now had two daughters-in-law, and they were also alone. What would she do? How would they survive? What kind of future could each of them expect? We're going to look at that, uh, this text in three uh, sections this morning. In the first, verses 6 through the first part of verse 14, we learn that we often exaggerate our hopelessness when we assume God is against us. Now, we need to recognize right up front, this text is very careful here to mention that Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that God delivered manna from heaven or that some miracle occurred. The food in the fields came by natural means of crop production. However, despite what else we will look at this morning, we see that Naomi still had an understanding that this was from the hand of the Lord. This is God showing favor to his people after 10 years of judgment. And now I point that out because like our friend William Cooper, it's easy sometimes to to read what Naomi is thinking, what she had to say, how she reasons through things and assumes that God is not gracious. And she has no sense of his graciousness, but that 
That doesn't seem to be the case. She really is seeing the Lord's provision despite what it may or may not mean for her. So this visit from God means the end of the famine. So Naomi prepares for the journey and her two Moabite daughters-in-law begin on the journey with her toward Bethlehem. But Naomi turns and urges them as young widows to leave her and to return back to their own people, to return back to their own gods. This is undoubtedly a helpless expression from Naomi. There's there's very much a recognition on her part from her own experience that she left her country of origin and went to a foreign land. And, And look where she ended up. She had nothing good in the end to show for her journey and away from her family and away from her people, away from her land. However, Naomi is also, from her perspective, trying to be merciful to these young girls, to be kind to her daughters in law. She wants to give them some sound wisdom. These girls, they still had family. They were still young. They didn't have children yet. They could still experience the blessing of a new husband. And she says, I'm not pregnant with sons. And this is no small thing. How would they be cared for? And and her reasoning here, you you can hear that she's trying to reason with them about the circumstances. What can I, as your mother-in-law, what can I offer you at this point? I don't have a husband. I'm not going to be pregnant with sons. And even if I found a husband today and I got pregnant tonight with twin boys, are you going to wait around for them to grow up and to be old enough for you to marry them? Don't keep yourselves from marrying again. Go back to your people. Go back to your land. This is, this is too much to bear that God would make my circumstances exceedingly bitter and that you would enter into that with me in the same way. Go and be free from me and marry again. Be, be cared for by your family. Be cared for by your people. Now, we can miss this because it's some, not something that aligns in any way with our culture, but Naomi's making reference to something That was an Israelite custom. It's a custom that's actually going to turn things around for Naomi in the chapters that follow. The custom was that when an Israelite husband died, his brother or his nearest male relative was to marry the widow and to continue on the brother's name. It was an incredibly merciful thing in the culture because of the widow's inability to be provided for or to carry on the family name after her husband died, especially if she was young and childless. Now, ladies, you may think of that and say, thank God I don't have to marry my husband's brother. But in this culture, in this culture, it was incredibly merciful. So here in verse 11, Naomi is referring to the custom when she says that she has no other sons. She thinks it's hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to remain committed to this family name. What could she possibly have to offer them? Evidently, she had forgotten that she has a relative named Boaz, but we're going to meet Boaz as we get into the next chapter next week. So Naomi's trying to send these ladies back home. And she even offers her prayers that the Lord would deal kindly with them, 
Just as they had dealt kindly with their dead and they had dealt kindly with Naomi herself, she prays for a future of hope and prosperity that they would find rest in the home of their husbands. So she's saying that her prayer is that Orpah and Ruth would remarry and that they would find a future for themselves in their own country. They were Moabites. And so if they went to Israel, they'd be less likely to marry an Israeli man because they're not Israeli women, and that's who they would be looking for. And so all of that would be left for them to share in Naomi's poverty. So she kissed them farewell, and the three of them joined together in loud weeping, in grief. This, if they walked away, would surely mean that they would never see each other again. They've just lost their husbands, and now in Naomi's mind she's saying goodbye to them forever. Certainly she loved them and cared for them. What a tragic and sad situation. Now, just like we said with William Cooper, though, we know Naomi who recognizes that her God is good, that her God is kind, that her God has a, and she has a sense that he will reward faithfulness and that he will love these two Moabite women. But at the same time, she looks at her own circumstances and said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm hoping that God will be merciful to you because He is a merciful God, but that's for everyone else. He's against me. Brothers and sisters, there can be times in our lives when we have decided based on our circumstances that God is against us. And when that happens, our natural tendency is to exaggerate our hopelessness. We don't think it could be any worse. How could God do this to me? How could God allow this to happen if he really loves me? And we become so bitter that we can't even see the forest for the trees. Now, one of the neat things that the book of Ruth does is sort of like if we are watching the story on a a screen, we get the beginning of the story, and it's this really close-up shot of, of a few characters. And as the story progresses, you can kind of see the camera pulling back and back and back, and we see a bigger and bigger picture of what God is doing in His providence. Well, Naomi is focused right now on the close up. All she can see is right here in front of her. She's not even lifting her eyes to see beyond, to think beyond. There's no way. And so she's exaggerating everything. She has admitted that the Lord has ended the famine in her homeland, but but she doesn't see the blessing. She's not acknowledging that there is, in fact, a man who would have a responsibility back home to provide. And, And what we're going to see is that she would not have known That God is going to use Ruth in a way that is so great that nobody could ever imagine it. But here and now, here in this instance, Naomi is so embittered by her circumstances. She's struggling through the hard reality of God's difficult providence. She can't see any of God's mercy in her own life. Orpah. Ruth, may the Lord bless you, but he's not blessing me. Let me go in peace. Let me die as a lonely widow on my own. That's what she's asking of them. For Naomi, her best days were behind her, and she was simply going back to Israel to finish life as a miserable, cursed widow. But we see something going on here with Ruth. 
There's something different about Ruth, and we see that in our second point this morning, the second part of verse 14 through verse 18, and that is that sometimes we have to make difficult decisions that lead us to unknown places. These three women, you can imagine the scene, these three women are all crying together, and and the meaning of Naomi's words are sinking in. Just try to imagine this, to grasp the weight of this for each of these women. And Orpah and Ruth both respond to this differently. Orpah kisses Naomi, and again, they both know what that meant. This was their final farewell. Now, sometimes Orpah gets a bad rap here as people read this. There's this assumption that she sort of gave up too easily and that she shouldn't have agreed to do what Naomi did so readily because of what Ruth does. But it's not like Naomi was completely wrong to assume that life would be more difficult for them as Moabite women in Israel. Moab was where they were from. Moab was where their people were, where their homes were, where their family was. And so Orpah was dissuaded to continue in the journey by a sensible counsel of a wise older woman. And so she returned to Moab. And there's no reason to think that she was wrong in doing so. Ruth is the main character in this story, so we tend to highlight her as being more faithful or being more obedient or whatever than than Orpah, but this is absolutely a situation of being able to make a decision on an issue where there's no right or wrong answer. They're both acceptable. They just carry very different outcomes. In no way should we assume that Orpah loved Naomi less than Ruth or that she was less thankful or devoted or committed to Ruth uh, than Ruth was, but but she did see the wisdom in what Naomi counseled with regard to her circumstances, and so she did that. And in God's providence, Orpah returned to Moab, and Ruth remained with Naomi. Ruth was not so easily persuaded. She was loyal to Naomi in the end. She clung to Naomi. So if you think of the two women, one way to think is that in this decision, Orpah wished to become a wife again, and Ruth was determined to remain as a daughter. And so you just have two different paths. Which is better? Neither. They're just different. And notice, Naomi even tries one more time to get Ruth to to go. She even used Orpah's decision to try and entice her. But notice, it's interesting how she says it. She doesn't say, go back home. She tells her to do like Orpah, who returned back to her people and her gods. More specifically, her people refers to her nation. Not her family, like we assume, but the reference here to her gods is tied to this ancient belief that a god was tied to the people of the land. So if Ruth was going to worship the god of Moab, which would have been the god uh, Chemosh, she would have had to return back to the land to which Chemosh was tied. It's interesting to note, though, that that Naomi doesn't think in that way about Yahweh in terms of people in a land. He was, as far as Naomi understood, he was just as at work in Moab, just as present in Moab as he was in Israel. And we see the way that Naomi talked about God in her own experience, that that was very much the case. So why would she encourage Ruth to go back to Chemosh? It's hard to say. 
It may have been nothing more than thinking Ruth would be attracted to the idea, so it may be a way to further convince her. But whatever the reality, at the very least, if Ruth wanted to continue worshiping Chemosh, she would be well advised to go do that where he was venerated because he wasn't a part of what was going on in Bethlehem. And so Ruth was left with a difficult decision. And she chose to go with Naomi. And the more you think about Ruth's words here, the more amazing they become. It really is astonishing how committed Ruth is to her mother-in-law despite having a future that is completely unknown. She is determined to go with her. She is determined to stay by her side. She is determined to continue being her daughter until death. But think of what this means for Ruth. This means that she has to leave her people and leave her land. At this point, as far as she knows, it means a life of widowhood. It means a life of childlessness because Naomi has no man to give. And if she marries a non-relative, her commitment to Naomi's family would be lost. She'd be cut off from that family. It means going to an unknown land among an unknown people with unknown customs and an unknown language. Now, most of us, if we just take a minute to think of what that would look like for ourselves, we probably wouldn't be as quick to jump at the opportunity as Ruth is here, would we? And some of you are thinking, especially if it's with my (laughs) mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law, by the way. But she takes this even further in verse 17. Ruth says, Where you die, I will die, and there be buried. In other words, she will will never return home, not even if Naomi dies. However, the most astonishing thing, she says, the most astonishing thing in verse 16, your God will be my God. Now think about that. Naomi just finished telling Ruth that the hand of the Lord was against her. That God was opposed to her. That God essentially was cursing her. Naomi's experience of God was bitterness and darkness and sadness. And yet, here's Ruth. Here's Ruth forsaking her religious heritage to make the God of Israel her very own God. Charles Simeon commented on this and he wrote, Her views of religion might not be clear, but it is evident that a principle of vital godliness was rooted in her heart and powerfully operative in her life. In fact, she acted in perfect conformity with that injunction that was afterwards given by our Lord. He who does not willingly forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. That's what she was doing, forsaking everything. Now, undoubtedly, she had heard of Yahweh, Her husband likely told her of God's love for his people, his power at the Red Sea, his glorious purposes of peace and righteousness, his just law, his abundant provision. She surely knew these things, but now in this moment of truth, now in this moment of decision, she says, he will be my God. All of this, despite her own bitter experience, and the bitterness and the darkness of the situation as Naomi had presented it. What Ruth saw was beyond what Naomi was willing to recognize or consider. 
despite the bitter setbacks, this God offered freedom from the securities and comforts of the world so she could courageously venture into the unknown and to the strange. She could commit herself radically to Naomi and to this new way of life among these new people, to the one true and living God. What a woman, right? An amazing woman. Oh, that the Lord would raise up such women in our midst. And you know, we, we like to have our lives mapped out. We really like to live in this illusion that we have things figured out and that our plans are God's plans. But on some level, even though we make decisions and we assume them to be the wisest, most principled decisions, we realize that every decision we make is dependent upon the will of God. Christians struggle with this a lot of times in a way that Ruth clearly didn't. Notice she didn't say... Naomi, this is a lot. There's a lot here. I need to go and pray about it. I need to go, I need to go and, and think about this for a long time and make sure that I have a peace about it. You know, big decisions in life, they never really leave us with absolute peace of mind and heart, do they? We're always probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable and nervous. And, and the Lord has never promised that through prayer we just sort of go away with that feeling on big decisions we have to make. It's more of a mystical idea that if I pray about something and it's the right decision, I'm just going to feel completely peaceful about it. If you've ever signed the line for a mortgage, you never probably really have that peaceful, easy feeling. It's a big decision. It's a big thing. And so we're a little bit anxious about that. And so Ruth understood that. She didn't, she didn't need to go away and make sure that everything was, was figured out as far as she could figure it out. She just knew. You're my mother-in-law. I love you. There's a promise of something here, and I'm committed to you, and I'm going to stay committed to you. I'm going to follow after you. There was no reason why she couldn't decide what she was going to do here based on the facts that she had and the desires of heart, her heart, so she went for it. I admire that. Now, of course, we should be wise with big decisions in life. We need to think about those things and pray about those things and seek godly counsel on those things. But it's not going to be, always be accompanied by this peaceful disposition and a guarantee that everything is going to work out. You may not... See things realistically all the time. And for all she knew, Ruth was going to a life as a strange person without a husband and without much of a future. She was going to Israel to suffer and die. But she went anyway. It's really an indictment on the lack of faith shown not by anyone other than Naomi in this story, right? When this Moabite woman shows greater confidence in that whatever is going to happen is going to be okay. It will be okay no matter what goes on. Why? Because she has committed herself to Yahweh. And in the end, whatever our God ordains is right. And indeed, as we will see going through Ruth, all that God ordains is good and right and works toward bringing about the most glorious end. And in the end, Naomi was impressed with Ruth. She was determined and there was no arguing with her otherwise. So Naomi accepted the situation and she stopped arguing. 
And we see lastly this morning in verses 19 through 22 that sometimes life is hard, but God's purposes are for the good of his people. Thinking back to our our first point, remember Naomi assumed the worst about her circumstances and she surely assumed that her entry into Bethlehem with the Moabite daughter-in-law was going to be less than desirable, but by all indications, they were received together by the women in Bethlehem. But how does Naomi respond to them? She responds from a hard heart. She says, don't call me Naomi. Her name is... Naomi means pleasant or sweet. That's the meaning of her name. But she doesn't want to be thought of as pleasant or as sweet. Instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Well, she says, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me? Literally, that means testified against me. And she says, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And can you imagine that response from someone? You haven't seen them in 10 years. You've wondered about them. Maybe you've prayed for them. And all of a sudden, they show up in town, and you see, you see her, and you say, is that Naomi? Naomi, is that you? How are you, dear sister? I've wondered about you. How are you doing? And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's a pretty solid indication of how she thinks life is going, right? The instant someone greets her, she lets them know things aren't good. I'm bitter. I'm bitter because God has dealt with me in a way that's made me bitter. Listen, life is hard sometimes, isn't it? That's not just for you or for your neighbor, but that's for me and everyone else sitting in this room and everyone else in this world. Life is hard sometimes. And when life is hard, we have to remind ourselves of this reality because we tend to get it in our heads that we are somehow unique, that our situation is worse than everyone else's, that our lives are more difficult. But the truth of the matter is that life for everyone is just as hard because we're living life in a broken, fallen world and we sin and others sin and a lot of things are out of order and upside down and backwards And they're not the way they're supposed to be. And so it's hard. Some days we may wake up and just not want to do it. We just maybe don't want to get out of bed, not want to drag our carcasses to whatever we have to do for the day. We just want to go back to sleep and hope that it'll all go away. But it doesn't. This life is filled with toil and strain and a lot of thorns and thistles and and sweat and blood and heartache and broken bones and cancer and, and financial difficulties and job loss and rebellious children and marital strife and conflict with neighbors and evil all around us, especially in our own hearts. And there's no doubt that our tendency is to join arms with Naomi and say, me too, call me bitter. Call me bitter too. Some of you are bitter at God. You're bitter about your circumstances and you think you deserve better than what you have and you're bitter at God. You think you've gotten a raw deal in life and you're just hanging by a thread and you're just waiting until you get to go to heaven. But there's a problem in how you're thinking about this life and your circumstances and about how God is dealing with you. 
Now, first, let me say there's, there's two things that Naomi gets right here. I like that she doesn't just sort of have this namby-pamby sentimental evangelicalism going on. She has better theology than most people. But two things she's sure of here, and she's absolutely correct. One is that God is sovereign, and two is that God has afflicted her. If the first thing is true, the second thing has to be true as well. And sometimes evangelicals want to sort of make excuses for why that's not the case. I was in a Bible study one time, and this girl was sharing that, that her dad just found out that he had terminal cancer. He, he really didn't have many days to live. And a well-meaning guy in the room spoke up, and he said, I just want you to know that God has absolutely nothing to do with that cancer. And I thought immediately, you know, that was about hopeless thing you could ever tell someone. If I have cancer one day, I want to know that God is right there in the middle of it with a plan that he's working out for his purposes, for his glory, for my good, and for the good of his church. I don't want to have some way of thinking that God isn't there, that God isn't involved, that God is, is careless, that God is just as shocked as I am and confused about what's happening and how it's going to go forward. I need a solid rock. I need a mighty fortress. I need a bulwark that never fails. And if he's not that, and he's completely not involved in my affliction, my affliction has just become a bigger problem than I ever thought it was. My affliction is the least of my worries because now I have an impotent God who won't do anything. He's not even a part of it. He's just standing off and watching and wringing his hands just like me. You see, Naomi's problem isn't that she had bad theology because most of her theology is pretty good. But she forgot. She forgot the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was also in a foreign land among a foreign people because his brothers sold him into slavery. And then he was framed by an adulteress. He was put in prison. He was forgotten about. Joseph had every reason to say, don't call me Joseph, call me bitter. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But what did Joseph do? He kept trusting God. And God turned everything to his glory and to the good of his people, including Joseph. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, Jesus, when Joseph confronted his brothers, there was a famine and they came and, and Joseph was, by this point, he was second in command over all the land and he had, this, he had a vision, he had this brilliant idea, we're going to store up enough grain so that we can feed the people for seven years because a famine is coming. And his brothers came before him and they bowed before him and they knew who he was and assumed that he was going to take their lives. And mercifully, he told them that he didn't want to harm them. But what did he say? What was his point? Why was he not going to harm? It's one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. Genesis 50, verse 20. He said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph didn't deny that God was in the middle of all of it. But it was so that he could bring about the good purposes that he had determined. Their intentions were evil. They would be responsible for their evil intentions. But God intended all that happened for good. 
He never denied that God was right in the middle of his affliction, but unlike Naomi, he knew it wasn't going to always be that way. Naomi is right to believe in a sovereign, almighty God who governs the affairs of nations and families and gives each and every day our part in pain and our part in pleasure. But Naomi needed to open her eyes to the reality beyond her affliction. And that is to God's greater merciful purposes. It was God who took away the famine that led her back home. If Naomi could only see what that is going to mean. Not only that, Naomi needs to open her eyes to Ruth. What a gift she is to her. What a blessing. And yet there Naomi stands with Ruth right next to her before the people of Bethlehem. Notice what Naomi says in verse 21. The Lord has brought me back empty. Empty. No, Naomi, you're not empty. Look right beside you. Who is that? Wow. If only she knew what was to come. If only she knew what the Lord was doing through all of this. The song that she was singing about bitterness would have been so different. Yes, things are difficult now. Yes, circumstances are tough, but the Lord has a greater day waiting. The Lord has greater purposes, and I don't know what they are, but they're there. And the Lord's proven himself faithful time and time and time again. Brothers and sisters, your circumstances may be tough right now. I get that. We all go through that. But what are you thinking about? Your circumstances? Where's your hope? In in this stuff getting better? And maybe it won't. Maybe it won't, but you know what? This stuff here and now, it's just here and now. The Lord calls us to look beyond our circumstances, to look above our circumstances, to look to Christ alone who has promised hope, who has promised a future beyond anything this world can offer. And friends, you may think things are too hard and you may feel hopeless, you may feel helpless. But God is there. God is sovereign. God is working in ways you can never imagine on your own. And you may may sense right now that things are bitter. That things are so hard. And how could a God who loves me do this to me? His purposes aren't anything that you can imagine. So what are you focused on? Here? Now? Or what God has before us? Everything around you may be intended for evil, but God intends it for good. And we know that God intends it for good because He gave His only Son that we would have the greatest. And a God who gives up His Son to die on our behalf doesn't give us half good. He doesn't leave us bitter. He gives us hope. He gives us help. And he gives us those things by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ. He's done it all for our good and for his glory. May our sights be set beyond this life, beyond our circumstances, that Christ may be our all in all. Let's pray together. Our glorious God, our Redeemer, our great hope, 
our most precious friend. We pray, O oh God, asking that your word would be applied to our hearts as a healing balm, as a reminder that even hearing this word today, that we might go away from here today and our circumstances may not change or improve. Maybe they'll get worse in some instances. And yet you are using all of those times for your people to, to continue to plow us under, to continue to help us die to ourselves, that we would not live upon ourselves, that, that all the vestiges of pride would be rooted out of our hearts, that every idea, every thought that we deserve better than our circumstances would be removed, and that we would learn to trust in Christ alone, that we would learn to stop thinking about ourselves and to start setting our eyes and our hope and our help not on better circumstances because when those circumstances go away there's surely to be others but instead on Christ who He is what He has done and what He provides. You loved us enough to send Him and so may we rely upon Him all the days of our lives and may You do it for Your glory and that Your church would be strengthened And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.